In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Gardening can take a long time to learn, especially when you get to a new place. Now, I grew up in farm country in Illinois and in rural Florida where, for the most part, if you put things in the ground with the proper spacing and at the right time of year, you weed for a couple weeks until they get big enough, and then you can often let, just let things ride. They'll grow on their own. In Florida, you don't even have to do that sometimes. You can just toss some seeds into the ground and watch as they just fly up no matter what you try over the years to stop them. They just keep going and going and going. Unless you get into years with extreme rain or extreme lack of rain, things just grow. Now in New Mexico, you have to approach plants differently. There are some things you just don't plant. You'll never be able to water them enough. You'll never be able to put them in enough shade to live. You have to be more careful with your watering. You have to be careful about what part of the day you water. If you water at the wrong part of the day in New Mexico or Arizona, you'll burn the plant. And there are some plants that we couldn't get to grow consistently. Even when we did everything right by the book and by the way the neighbors told us to do it, we just couldn't get them to grow right year after year. Some years they'd grow great, some years they wouldn't grow at all, and some years, well, they'd look like Charlie Brown's Christmas tree. It's very scraggly. But when you move to a new location, it can take years to understand the best ways to garden there. These are the words of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining elders among the exiles, to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. We go backward in time a little bit to the first deportation, the first time that Judah had been conquered. This was the first time that God's people lost in the first group that was exiled. Daniel would have been amongst them. God instructed Jeremiah to write a letter and address it to everyone in exile. The elders, the priests, the prophets, but also the common person. Every single one of God's people. And this is the first letter anybody wrote to the exiles. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles who I sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And then God tells them they're going to be there for a while. So build houses and live in them. Make gardens and start eating from them. God had told Jeremiah it was going to be 70 years, and Jeremiah told the people that as well. So God didn't tell them just to pitch a tent and go do some fishing. No. Stop, build a house, start learning to garden. Learn to grow your food along the Tigris and the Euphrates just like your ancestors had to learn how to grow fruit along the River Jordan. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. A couple of weeks ago we talked about what God was asking his people to do. And he sends them this message more than once. He tells them to pray for their enemies. Listen, these aren't simply ideological opponents. These aren't people rooting for the wrong sports team. Right? They're not Cardinals fans. To the people that just conquered them. And God said, you have to live where you're engaged. And this is not your permanent home. I'm not saying that, says God. You or your grandchildren will have the opportunity to come back and live in the promised land again. But for now, you have to focus on where you are. Get married. Have kids. Encourage your kids to have kids. 
You have to seek the welfare of where you're at and pray for those in charge, just like you did when you were at home. Why? Because you're living there. And your welfare is tied up, not just in you and your friends and your fellow countrymen, but also in your neighbors. Be joyful in the Lord, all you lands. Sing the glory of his name. Sing the glory of his praise. Now last week, all the readings were a little bit downcast and downtrodden. This week, we get a joyful recounting of God and what he's done for his people, right? He turned the sea to dry land so that they went through the water on foot, and there we rejoiced in him. The psalmist is reminding us that he delivered his people from Pharaoh. He keeps his eye on his people, and because of this, we should rejoice in our God. But the times always aren't easy, right? You let your enemies ride over our heads. We went through fire and water, but you brought us out into a place of refreshment. The psalmist knows life's not always easy. We go through trials here on this earth. There are times when it feels like we are surrounded. Times when our enemies are circling their chariots around us. That's kind of what the psalmist has in mind here. There are times when we go through the fire and the water, sometimes metaphorically and unfortunately sometimes literally. We all have times of trouble. But in the end, he brings us into a place of refreshment. Or to quote David, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was going between the region of Samaria and Galilee. Jesus is still traveling to Jerusalem and we see he's moved south. He's moved south through Galilee, and now he's into Samaria. He's been telling his disciples how they should live in the world. They keep asking questions, and he keeps explaining it to them. And here they're approached by ten lepers, but the ten are keeping their distance. They cry out to Jesus for help. And Jesus tells them from a distance to go and to see the priests. Because they know that by telling him, by him saying to go and see the priests, the only reason why the lepers would go to see the priests is to show the priests that they're healed that they can go out and live in society. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he was a Samaritan. And one, seeing that his skin is clear, turns around and runs back, loudly praising God, and throws himself at Jesus' feet. And he thanked him, and apparently it was profusely. Now in Jesus' day, leprosy was both a death sentence, you're not recovering from leprosy unless you get lucky or unless God heals you and it's an isolator because no one wants to catch leprosy you have to go and stay far away from people from your family and your friends there's no worshiping together there's no going to birthday parties and back then there's no FaceTime or Zoom you can't even see them they want to drop something off they've got to keep a considerable distance away now I think unfortunately that we all have a sense of what that isolation is like but he came back and he thanked him. And he was a Samaritan, someone who, who would have been looked down upon in Jesus' society. Samaritans were the enemies of the Jews, or at least the two groups thought they were to some degree. And Jesus asked, were not ten made clean? But the other nine, where did they go? Why did none of them return and give praise to God except the foreigner? And then he said to him, go up and get on your way. Your faith has made you well. And Jesus asked him, where are his friends? Why did God's people not come back and thank me? Why is it only the foreigner that's coming back? Now we could put ourselves in the place of the other nine. Maybe they were just too excited. 
maybe seeing the healing, all they wanted to do was run to the priest, get checked out, and be okay to go and see their friends and family? Did they feel entitled? Maybe they thought it was Jesus' job, right? What else do the people of God assume that prophets and priests do? That when Messiah come, he would come and take care of God's people. Were they ungrateful? We don't know. But Jesus tells the Samaritan, get up and go home. Your faith has made you well. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, a descendant of David. That is my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. We continue to read about Paul's faith. It stays strong even while he's locked in prison. And the gospel to him is simple. Jesus Christ, David's descendant, is raised from the dead. With the resurrection, we have hope. The promises of God are going to be fulfilled in him. And even though Paul's in prison, he continues to preach the gospel. And Paul says, listen, I may be unable to leave, but the word of God is not chained. It cannot be contained. It resonates out to the world in what we say and in what we do. Paul writes, the saying is sure. If we've died with him, we also live with him. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Jesus is faithful even when we're not. When we say or reaffirm our baptismal covenant, we say phrases like, will you persevere in resisting evil, and whenever you fall into sin, repent and return to the Lord? Or will you continue in the apostles' teaching and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and the prayers? Or will you proclaim by word and example the good news of God and Christ? Will you seek and serve Christ in all persons, loving your neighbor as yourself and all the others? What's our response? We say what? I will with God's help. Why? Because God's faithfulness, God's mercy and forgiveness are dependent on him. They're not dependent on us. They're not dependent on our actions. And thanks be to God for that. Our response in our times of weakness is all that we need to do is to call out to him. And he is faithful and he is just to forgive us. Remind them of this and warn them before God that they are to avoid wrangling over words, which does no good but only ruins those who are listening. Now that's kind of a strange phrase, isn't it? What are we talking about when he says wrangling over words? If we go down a few verses to verse 23, it says this. Refuse foolish and ignorant questions, knowing that they generate strife. The Lord's servant must not quarrel, but be gentle towards all able to teach, patient, in gentleness, connecting those who oppose him. Perhaps God may give them repentance leading to full knowledge of the truth, that they may recover themselves out of the devil's snare, having been taken captive by him to his will. At the end of the day, our job is not to win arguments. This isn't a debate team. Our job is not to send sinners to heaven to talk to Jesus directly about their sin. Our job is to love others and preach the good news patiently, gently, with the end result being that those who are struggling to get out of the snare they're in, to help them get out of it so they can join us on the journey. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved by him, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly explaining the word of truth. Now in the end, this is what we're all working towards, and it's a long-term commitment. I've never met anyone who wakes up one day and says, okay, God, now I'm perfect. It's over. I'm just going to keep like this. We have to learn 
how to live in the world we're in. We have to learn to garden where God has us now. Not the one that we're going to. Because when we get there, we'll no longer be looking in the mirror darkly. We'll be seeing our Lord face to face. Amen.